0: So our text this morning is actually a rather large chunk. This was a sort of a two-part sermon. Last week was part one. This is part two. So I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. So I'm in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your Sabbath. Lord God, we are all in desperate need of rest and refreshment, healing, renewal, And Lord, we have come here today to receive all of those things, not from outward signs, not from the memorials laid out here before us, but from your son himself. We are here to sing to him, to hear his word, to feast on him, to renew our faith in him, to be restored in him. So I pray, Lord God, that all of us sitting here, you know exactly what we need to hear. You know exactly what comfort and what conviction we each need. And we pray, Lord God, that you would, by the power of your word, give us each the heart surgery that we need. We thank you and we praise you and we pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. So breaking all of um, Mark down into sections can be very complicated. Uh Today is part two of a, of a, of a section in, in the ending of Mark chapter two, the beginning of Mark chapter three, that are actually connected. But, but these come at the end of five different events that has been, have been recorded in quick succession, all involving Jesus and his authority going up against the authority of the Israelites. So you, these each individual episodes that we've seen did not necessarily occur in the order in which they have been recorded here. We know from the other Gospels that some of them occurred at other times. And even what follows here, um, these two sections that I read seem to go together. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and then he's in the synagogue. Well, it was already a Sabbath, and he was out in the wilderness. And then it immediately says on the Sabbath, he's in a synagogue. And we know from his pattern is that week to week, he's not always in the same place. He goes out in the wilderness for some time. He comes into a synagogue for some time. So there's no indication here that these are the same Sabbath. And there's no indication necessarily that they aren't. Uh, But all the rest of these stories are just sort of, they're thematic, right? There's a theme to them. And so Mark lumps them together. This whole section, though, chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 are about the messianic mission. Chapter 2, 1 through 17, concerns sin and sinners and the forgiveness of God. Chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 6, concerns fasting and the observance of the Sabbath and the intention of God. The incidents recorded are about the Messianic mission. In the beginning of this gospel, what is the Son of God all about? And and what, what Mark has done is put, oh, you want to know what he's about. You want to know the mission that he's on. You want to know what he's come to do. And he gives you these five stories. And it involves accepting people who are otherwise outcasts. It's about restoring sicknesses, restoring people to the fellowship of of God, restoring people's hands, and and through all of that, taking on the self-righteous leaders of the Jews. There is a new manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. And it is a sustained conflict with the old manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. As as Covey said, there's always a war. There's always going to be blood. Each of us individually have a war going on inside of us. And what we see here are, are, are some of those same wars that are in the culture. You've got religion versus the true faith. You've got some extraordinary religious guys. And Jesus challenging everything that they think they know. You've got this old way and a new way. You've got law and you've got gospel. And and the law of man versus the law of God. Because there is no difference, right? I, I, I have a huge problem with people pitting the gospel and the law against one another. We're going to get into that. They are actually more similar than people realize. It's not gospel and law. It's the law of God, which is a lot like the gospel, and the law of men, which is death. What we're going to see here is that the law of men is death. Two observances, two observances above all, define the Jewish people. One of them is circumcision. One of them is the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath began at sunset on Friday and went on until sunset on Saturday. The fourth commandment, the longest of the commandments, enjoins Jews to abstain from every kind of labor since God himself had rested on the seventh day of creation. Included in Sabbath rest were not only observant Jews, but also slaves and animals, even vegetation, which could not be cut, plucked, or uprooted. The, the whole idea about the Sabbath is that man is supposed to go out and work hard under the Lord, and every, every week he needs to rest. He needs a break. He needs to rejoice in the labor that he's done. And, and it doesn't matter in, in the nation of Israel if you're a Jew or not. If you, if you've conquered slaves through war and it's a bunch of Moabites, you're su- still supposed to give them a Sabbath rest. You don't make your slaves keep working while you lay in a hammock all Sunday, right? That's not the idea here. You're supposed to give your slaves, you're supposed to give your animals, you're supposed to even give the field a break <laughs> once a week. The whole idea is to, is, and that encourages life. To rejoice in the abundance that God has provided, to rejoice in the work that he has given our hands to do, is to encourage life. It's a gift. He said, here, don't work nonstop. Once a week, take a moment, like I did, to look upon the work that you have done and to rejoice in it. The Pharisees, however... Right? The the status of the Sabbath. The Sabbath actually sets the people of God apart from everyone else. It's a good and glorious thing that says, okay, you're my distinct people. I've given you these regulations about the Sabbath. And, And in the hands of the Pharisees, right, they're all about the status of it, not the gift of it. They like that it sets them apart. And, and what they've done is they've, they've doubled down on the law about the Sabbath to set them apart even more. Let's make this distinction as distinct as possible. We don't want to look, sound, work, rest at all like the people of, of, the, of, of the nations, the nations of the world. We want to be completely distinct from them. Right? They're not using the Sabbath to... It, it, It's not a tool in their hands to give peace to people. It's not a tool in their hands to teach people about what God is really like. It's a tool in their hands to make sure that everyone knows they're the people of God. Everything that God has given them is supposed to be missional, including the Sabbath. But it's not missional to the Pharisees. It's not missional. Now, we're going to go back and review for a moment last week, just a little bit, so that um, we remember what's going on, because these two stories are distinct, but there's a lot of similarities between them, and and I I want to highlight a few things before we get to the withered hand, because the withered hand is really the key to this whole thing. The action of the disciples in plucking heads of grain as they passed through a field on a Sabbath walk provoked the fourth controversy recorded by Mark. The action itself was wholly legitimate. There's absolutely nothing wrong with picking grain as you're walking on the Sabbath, Deuteronomy 23:25 says this, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the ears with your hands, but you shall not bring a sickle into your neighbor's standing grain, okay? If you're walking along and you need a snack, there's grain, thank you, neighbor, I'm gonna have me a snack. Now, what you're not supposed to do is go get a bag and a sickle and load up your cart with all of your neighbor's grain and take it home with you. <laughs> that is a no-no. It doesn't matter what day of the week you do that on, that's not okay? So what, what the, right? Here's the, the Lord is with them. Do you think if they were breaking the Sabbath laws, Jesus would stop them and say, hey guys, come on now. Get your act together. No, he's walking along because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of rest and refreshment. You guys need refreshment? Get some refreshment. Peter, put the sword away. We're not going to take any with us. We're just going to eat now. Okay, calm down. And then we're going to move on. The disciples' conduct came under the critical scrutiny of the Pharisees who, you remember, are hiding in the bushes watching them. Why are the Pharisees out in the fields where they are? It's weird, creepy. The action of plucking grain was interpreted broadly as reaping. Right, This is where we first start to see the the Pharisees' definitions, theological definitions, are horrible. Right, Somebody needs to get these guys a, a, a dictionary of the Old Testament so they can simply understand what some of these words mean. What these guys, uh, Jesus' followers are doing is not reaping. It's not. Nowhere in the Old Testament is, is reaping defined by what they're doing. So right out of the gate, we see that the guys who were supposed to know don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. What are you guys doing reaping? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? That's not reaping. You should go back and you should read your Bible again. Reaping on the Sabbath was, was actually formally prohibited. But again, that involves a sickle and a sack. They don't have either of those things. There's no sickle or sack, and so it's not reaping. God had given the Sabbath as a day of rest and refreshment and reward for hard labor. The rabbis use the Sabbath regulations as chains. They're not about freedom. And they add link by link to this chain until it's so heavy and so big that they can wrap up the entire nation of Israel, and there is no Sabbath freedom. And and, and the lengths to which they would go, and when I say add link to link, I... If you ripped a garment, you were not allowed to sew it. You could put one stitch in it to make sure that the tear doesn't continue, but otherwise you had to leave the garment. Right? So you're just walking around the big hole in your shirt. If, if, if you were tying your sandals and you accidentally tied a knot, it would be working on the Sabbath to untie the knot. So how am I supposed to get my sandals off? Well, sleep in them, buddy. It's more important, you know untying a knot. And I I said last week, they had to count their steps. If you go 1,999 steps, under half a mile, you have not traveled on the Sabbath. You're fine. So they were able to add link upon link upon link. And think, think. And here these guys are, so into this these regulations, that they're hiding in the bushes watching you to make sure that you don't break any of them. Does this sound like refreshment? Does this sound like rest? Right? Kids, check the window. I got a knot. Make sure there's no Pharisees outside in the bushes because I got this knot in my sandal and I really don't want to sleep in them again. (laughs) The oral tradition had become absurd. The oral tradition, not the biblical tradition. Jesus is here to fight for the biblical tradition. Like David, who's out in the wilderness gathering an army to reinvade the land and to take it back for the people of God, the law had not become absurd to them. The oral tradition had become absurd. There are two distinct things. I could go in my office, and if I got a giant systematic theology, right, let's just pick one at random, The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, and and I took that and I brought it out here. It's as if I just pushed this down on the floor, and I opened that up, and that was now the requirement for everyone to do everything. If it doesn't say it in here, we're not going to do it. They have this oral tradition that is not the Bible, and and it's a gift. Every the 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 actual tradition is a gift that they have taken, cut and pasted, added a bunch of their own stuff. It's like the Jefferson Bible. Have you guys ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Yes, Jefferson hated miracles, and so he actually took the Bible and cut out all the supernatural parts. And you can get it, and and it just it really it we it reads like a weird Sunday school lesson through the whole thing, kind of like man. This is strange, because without the miracles and the supernatural stuff, all the teaching doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so what, what they have is this oral tradition that has nothing to do with, with the actual tradition, and they're using it to hold everyone in bondage. It, it's exactly the same in the Reformation. When you went to church then, you were, you didn't participate in the service, you watched it. And a bunch of guys wearing funny clothes and funny hats would speak Latin the whole time, and you would really have no idea what was going on, and you weren't holy enough to participate in it. It's the same thing with these guys. It's the same thing with these guys. The rabbis literally endeavored to offer a rule or at least a precedent for every conceivable Sabbath question. Every conceivable Sabbath question. That sounds exhausting. That sounds like a burden that no one can carry. I'm going to, right, I'm going to, we're supposed to regulate this thing, and so, just like a big bureaucracy, we're going to regulate it until you can't do anything, right? How are you, you seem to be breathing a little heavy. Maybe we should have some laws about how hard you should breathe to keep your heart rate down, because if your heart rate gets too high, maybe you're going to be working. I mean, could you imagine living in such a a church, (laughs) such a home? Because that's what we're going to get into here. This is what religious people do with the authority that they have. Right? Oh, you want us to regulate some stuff, God? Oh, I'm going to regulate some stuff. Watch me work. It's amazing how desensitized we come, we become to the things of God while we're trying to honor God. This is actually a point my wife made to me last week after the sermon. So if you go back to the Adam and Eve story, and, and, and God says to Adam, don't eat the apple or you'll die. Adam is very nervous about this now. And so what he's going to do is he's going to add a level. Don't touch it either. Now, if he says, don't touch it or you'll die, don't eat it or you'll die, and she touches it and she doesn't die, what is she going to think about the actual rule about not eating it? Well, I touched it and everything was fine. So clearly, either you weren't listening, Adam, Or God isn't really who he says he is. So think about that in your own home. You have all these house rules that aren't really the rule of God, right? And you're not consistent with it in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) And and you're breaking it here, and you're breaking it there. And over time, what are they going to, your kids, your wife, your your siblings, what, what are people in your home going to think about the actual rules, Right? It's not, there's nothing like trying to get your kids to learn a little something about decorum at the kitchen table while you're screaming at them. (laughs) Right? You will sit there and you will shut your mouth, right? And then, (laughs) because you will be respectful of other people. You're like spilling things all over the table. And they're like, oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Right? And that's the kind of hypocrisy we're going to see here. It's a matter of life and death <laughs> to these Pharisees to the point that if you don't obey, they'll kill you. They will kill you. Now think about that for a moment. Right? This is like an abortion, someone who's a, a, a against abortion, who's like, I am so against this wickedness that I'm going to go in there and I'm going to blow that place up. I'm going to kill everyone in there because this is an abomination. And you're like, um, oh okay, your heart just turned into an abortion mill. Your heart is worse than this abortion mill at that point because you're murdering everyone in your heart. And and this stringent, self-righteous list of rules and doctrines and distinctives that become the faith itself, this is what all of it leads to, murder, murder, outright murder. The reason in the first part of the story that they're asking him questions about the Sabbath is because in their legal system, you have to give a warning before you just charge someone. And this is common. Uh, you can't just uh, drop murder charges off. right? You can't just go down there and just acu- like, grab somebody and take them to jail. You have to warn them first. They say, hey, listen. We know there's a lot of rules and it's hard to keep track of them all. I want to just put you on notice. That's why we're following you around. We're dying for an opportunity to put you on notice. And we're going to put you on notice now that we're watching you, buddy, and you're not following the rules. right? You're letting these people work on the Sabbath, glean on the Sabbath. How dare you? And what I And this has been my point all along. What does Jesus do? Does he think, oh, man, we better go to another neighborhood. We better really, really be careful now. We better be so cautious. We better avoid trouble. No. That's not at all what he does. That's not at all what he does. Before, right, he really gets in, he's like, I'm going to, you think this is trouble? Apostles, disciples, you think this is trouble? Watch. And and he goes on here to not only drop the, the phrase son of man, but to call himself the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You understand this? Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And I'm the son of man, and therefore I am the Lord of even that. This is all mine. You guys are talking about things you know nothing about, and and they all belong to me. I will tell you what they mean. You're not going to stand there and tell me, the Lord of the Sabbath, what the Sabbath is all about as you're plotting to murder me. You're not going to do that. And the whole thing here is is a question of authority. Who has the ultimate authority? Who should the people listen to? Jesus or these Pharisees? Who is the man of God and who are the sons of Satan? Because again, there's this warfare. It's nonstop. It's nonstop. So let's go for a moment now into this story about the withered hand. So I'm going to read it again just so that it's fresh in our minds as I begin to talk about it. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're not there to worship. These are such pious guys. They don't even go to church to worship. They go to church to keep track of what everyone else is doing. Think about that for a second. Oh, I noticed you weren't there last weekend. right? We just can't wait to get in our car and text that guy and be like, hey, where were you, dude? Um, were you, so the question is, were you there because you were worshiping, or are you just there keeping track of everybody else? Or oh, did you see so-and-so and how they went talking to their wife? Did you see that? Right? Has that ever happened? Anybody ever got in the car afterwards, and you're kind of going over what did or didn't happen with other people? And, and my question to myself is always like, you know, I wonder if I was listening at all. I wonder if I was listening at all. So these guys are there, and they're not there to worship God. They're there to stand in judgment of others. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, th- this is interesting because come here is a, is a modernization. What they would have as a synagogue is there's, it's like a theater in the round. Okay, Jesus and the other leaders are in the center, and, and you have the, and it's a circle around them like an amphitheater, right? But that goes all the way around, like a, a theater around if you've ever seen it. And so he's calling the guy down from the back down to the center of the of the whole place. The guy with the shriveled hand who who, he might not even actually technically be allowed in there, depending on what's going on with the hand. But there he is. He's hoping to get a little, get close to Jesus. And Jesus calls him down into the center. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They didn't answer the question. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The healing of the man with a withered hand forms the last of the five controversies. It takes its place at this point naturally by topical association with the previous incident, and demonstrates that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what I'm talking about. He's not just saying things. He's saying things, and he's backing it up with real authority. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Watch. Watch what I'm going to do right there, and I don't care who's watching. I don't care what kind of trouble it gets me into. I actually don't care what kind of trouble it gets the guy with the withered hand into. (laughs) Right? Do you think the guy with the withered hand in the back who... Right, You're just praying, and you're like, just deliver me from this. And, And God calls you in your pain, and part of healing you is making you a spectacle in front of others. He doesn't mind getting his people in trouble. He doesn't want to just heal you off quietly in a corner somewhere. He wants to put you front and center. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. Now, this whole section here is mirrored by a section later in the Gospel of Mark. Leading up, so he had his introduction, and then he does these five stories. And then later on, towards the end, he's going to do another five stories, very similar to these, that bring him into the final conflict. And, And they mirror one another. So later in chapter 12, verse 34, Mark notes that no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Just like here, he's asking questions and nobody has an answer. Later, we're going to see exactly that same kind of thing. He's going to answer questions in such a way that nobody wants to ask him anymore. He just brings everyone to silence. Their learning is worthless in the face of real authority, real biblical knowledge. In chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus himself seizes the initiative in the concluding conflict. They're not going to go any further with him. And if so, somebody's going to put me to death, Jesus is thinking, I'm going to have to go ahead and do it for them. Let's take this conflict all the way. He's not holding back. They're holding back in the end. And he's like, no, 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 no. We have further to go. Which is at the kangaroo court. Have you guys ever noticed? They, they bring stooge after stooge in there to try to accuse him of something. And they got nothing. So much so that he finally has to give evidence against himself. He's like, you guys can't even pull this off. You're going to see the Son of Man coming in power and glory. And they're like, whoa, whoa. That was all we need to hear. Thank you, Jesus. And so he drives the conflict. He doesn't back down at all. And he doesn't, right? And being involved with him means you're involved in the trouble. The decision to seek Jesus' death is not the result of a single incident, right? This is why they're telling all the, Mark's telling all these different stories. The result of all these different stories, this ongoing conflict, is that it's headed in a particular direction. And right here in chapter 3, what we see are the Herodians, who are this group in Israel who are aligned with Rome, siding with the Pharisees to put him to death. Now that's what we call, in writing, foreshadowing. Because who, in the end, puts him to death? Well, the Herodians are involved, the Romans are involved, the Pharisees are involved. So you see here, the way of the cross isn't like, oh, I do a bunch of really actually mysterious things, and then at the end they put me at to death for them. The way of the cross is the way of conflict, the way where he is pursuing righteousness and holiness and rest because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's pursuing rest for others. And it gets him into such trouble. All the way back here in chapter 3, they want to put him to death already. This is the way of the cross. Conflict with the real enemies of God, whatever it costs. Pick it up, ladies and gentlemen. Pick up the cross And this is the way of the cross. Follow this pattern. Now, there's an interesting thing here because they don't seem to care that much that Jesus is able to do miracles. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that if I saw a guy doing things that nobody on earth has ever done before, I I might sit up and be like, who is this? Right? It would testify to who he is. But as as we've always pointed out, uh, Dean used to point this out all the time. No miracle ever caused someone to believe. The miracles themselves don't cause anyone to have faith or not. The, the, it, what it does is it just exposes who already believes in him and who doesn't. Nobody was ever converted because of a miracle. The, I mean, they clearly are like, wow, that guy can touch leprosy and not become a leper. But whatever, who cares? I'm just here to get evidence against him. Uh, the guy who can do that, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to take him to court. I don't know if I'd want to get in too much of a scrap with this guy. But they, but he has mocked their God, the oral tradition. And so nothing is going to stand in their way now. Nothing is going to stand in their way. One of the other things is that in his day, there was lots of work that you could do six days out of the week that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. So he gets into trouble on other times for performing things on, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, that he could have just waited till the next day to do. Because they have this whole law about this. (laughs) If you dislocated your shoulder, and it's not life-threatening, they would be like, okay, well, healing you would actually be a violation of the Sabbath. So sit over here, and in eight hours, I'll set that for you. That's absurd. That's absurd. And so part of it here, and and at other times to make the argument, but they're so angry right now that they don't even make this argument that they make at other times. Why don't you just wait until tomorrow? Because, and and the point is, Jesus is saying, you don't even understand what this day is all about. It's not about not doing it. It's about doing it. It's about giving relief to the person who needs relief. It's about giving rest to the person who needs rest. Bring me your dislocated shoulder because that's horrible. And that's a result of the fall. And the Sabbath is all about undoing the fall. Bring me the people who are sick. Bring me the people who are not doing well, and I will heal them. Jesus commands the man with the withered hand to come down, and he asks this question. Is it what, what, what is this day for? What is this day about? Death or life? Doing good or doing harm? And they have no answer for him. None. I, I, I'm sure they're sitting there racking their brains, thinking about the oral tradition, thinking... Man, nobody really covers that. Yeah, it's called the Bible, folks. <laughs> and the Bible is very clear, right? Even on the Sabbath day, if, if your if your animal falls into a ditch, you're supposed to help it. How much more a man with a dislocated shoulder? Right? What is the Lord of Sabbath about? He's about bringing rest and restoration and joy. How happy do you think this guy with the withered hand is, even though everyone's staring at him in dumb disbelief? How happy do you think he is that his hand is better? Now that's the point of a Sabbath, right? Versus is what the Pharisees want, which is everybody <laughs> looking out the window to make sure they're not watching them untie their knots. Right? What, these are the two kinds of Sabbaths you have. Which one sounds like the God of the Bible? It's a rhetorical question. Sabbath rest is about unconditional love. It's a, right? this is what he's using all of his authority for, is to give people a Sabbath rest that is beyond simply the day of Sabbath. Because he's come to undo all of the dislocated shoulders, all of the withered hands, all of the leprosy, all, to forgive all the sins. This is what this whole section, these five stories, is about what he's coming to do, which is to give people real rest, real true rest. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Now, the responsibility of the Pharisees is to make that fit with their Sabbath regulations. Because when it comes down to it, you can't have a systematic theology that leaves parts of the Bible out of it. Well, that's contrary to what we have been saying for 700 years, and so we're just going to ignore that. Do good to those who need it when it's in your power to do it. That seems like a universal principle, doesn't it? It doesn't say anything about not doing it on the Sabbath. And, and this is, right, I'm, I have a bookshelf of systematic theologies, don't get me wrong. But this is always the problem with them. You can't fit the whole Bible into them. Because if you could, the Bible wouldn't be the Bible anymore. And, and once you get to the point, I just caught myself doing this the other day. Right, You're reading the systematic theology, and there's all these verses in there, and you're just reading the systematic theology. And I thought, when, at what point did I stop looking the verses up? And, and whenever I do that, given my profession now, I'm like, I'm on dangerous ground because I'm just, I'm just eating this up here. And, and is this actually what the scriptures say? Because the oral tradition, the systematics, the hermeneutics that we're using aren't the thing that save us and quickly become the idol itself. And the Pharisees have got it all wrong. It's the tradition that they're upholding. That's their God, because whatever you defend, whatever you're willing to go to war for, is the God that you're serving. When it is in your power to do good, do it. Jesus refused to observe the traditional rules because he thought they were nonsense the doctrines of the people of god were contrary to the word of god and that is something in every age that every person who believes in the bible has to deal with because uh, you've never sat down and written a systematic theology however over your lifespan as a christian you have collected information in your mind in which you interpret what you're reading and what and, and you you don't right, it's not published by pnr it's not published by Canon Press, you're systematic. It just walks around in your head. And, and what we all need to realize is that for us, it's just the same as the Pharisees. We have to go back to the Word of God, and what does it actually say? Just reading some random section in Exodus, you might find out something that doesn't fit with the systematic you have. Right? Like the Pharisees failed to deal with this proverb that says, Do good to who, who it's in your power to do good to. And then, oh, wait, ooh, you know that? That's contrary to a great deal of tradition. We better figure out what that means. And when you're reading the scripture, what it does, the scripture is constantly correcting your faulty reasoning, your faulty understanding of what's going on. I got ahead of myself, but that's fine. I'm going to back up for a moment now. Because what I want to talk about for this moment here, right? This is the end of the teaching portion before we get to the preaching portion. In the other story, the guys who are supposed to know, Jesus loves to mess with them and he says, Haven't you read? Remember that? Haven't you read? You guys who are so well read, you didn't read the Bible. And why these two stories are aligned so perfectly is because he does it again, but he doesn't point at it. He doesn't point right at it. And this this is what I find as a person whose profession is to study these things, I, I can't explain how profound what I'm about to tell you is. Because why does he choose a man with a withered hand? Is that just an accident of the story? Is that just a detail? Right. I think, I, I never thought about that. It took reading a commentary written by a guy who's a great deal smarter than I am to, to be like you know he asked the question. I was like I never really why. I mean think about it. all these people are following around. You got a story about a leper. You got a story about uh, sinners. You got a story about a paralytic. I'm sure there were other sick people in the synagogue, but he calls the guy with the withered hand. Well, it's because Jesus has read his Bible. He's the living embodiment of Israel. The specific day-to-day things he's doing in in his life are dependent upon the word of God that he knows so well. And this is what I mean. If you go to Exodus chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, we read this. Again, the Lord said to him, him being Moses, okay, this is the part (laughs) about the bush. It's not about a bush. In Exodus, chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, okay, we've had the burning bush, and now God is talking to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, put your hand inside your cloak, and he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside the, his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they, the elders of Israel, do not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. So Moses has to go back and convince slaves in Egypt to take on the strongest military, the strongest empire in the world. And, and Moses is like, listen, God, who am I supposed to tell him is sending me? So he tells them. God tells Moses who who is sending him. He's like, well, how am I going to convince anyone of this? And so he gives him this sign: I will show who you are that I've put my authority on you by by withering your hand and then healing your hand. And and in Exodus four twenty nine through thirty one, we read this. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. The people saw the withered hand restored and they believed in Moses. They believed in the I am. Now what are the, who, who, so then what does that make the Pharisees then? True elders of Israel? They see the withered hand and and it makes them want to murder the one who did it. But there's more. There's actually in 1 Kings. Another story that I never really thought about, and, and I mean, it's, it's fascinating that over all this time, this is what God is preparing this, all these stories, all these types, all these shadows, and Jesus comes and he lives it out in real time. Here's a story in chapter 13 of First Kings, beginning in verse three. And the prophet gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord, your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. So Jeroboam, who's building altars to no gods, who's totally abandoned the living God, who is complete idol worshiper, has more discernment than the leaders of Israel. He sticks out his hand to grab the prophet and God wants to show everyone who the prophet is and so he shrivels his hand and then when he cries out to the Lord, he restores it again. Now in both of those stories, God is doing it on the behalf of the prophet because God wants to show who the prophet is. Jesus is standing there in the midst and he's the prophet who does it for himself. How blind, how hard-hearted are these men who do not get it? How much worse is the synagogue become, the temple become, than the false altars of Jeroboam? Because that's the... Jesus is like, you guys think you know what you're talking about and let me show you how much you don't. Because you're not the elders of Israel because the elders of Israel see a withered hand restored and they believe. Idolaters... In Israel see a withered hand restored and what they do is they they invite the prophet in and give him honor and and what they do is they restore the proper worship of Israel and and so this is what this whole story is about these Pharisees do not know who they are in the story in which they are living it's not God doing it on behalf of Jesus Jesus is doing it on his own behalf who does that mean he is the gifts of God, they were turning into burdens. They, they, they took all the grace out of it, and, and they make it a burden that no one can carry. And, and Jesus is trying to get through them, because he's angry, it says, but he also has, right? He's, he's mourning for them. He's mourning for them. He doesn't want it to be this way. He wants them to recognize who he is and be restored to the living God. And so he's both angry Right? You see his wrath, and you see his mercy in the same moment here. Where is this story going then? Because they immediately go out with the Herodians, and the Herodians are descendants of Edomites. Right, They're Edomites. Don't worry, follow me here, this is the end. They descend from the house of Edom, Edom, whatever, however you pronounce it. Now, if you recall, Herod killed all those babies when Jesus came. Right now in this portion of the story, Herod (laughs) just cut off the head of John the Baptist to reward a pole dancer, because that's what she is. She dances so sexy, he's so thrilled by it, he chops off John the Baptist's head and gives it to her. And the Pharisees want to line up with them against Jesus, because how dare he, how dare he hold the oral tradition in such disregard? This is what it said in Psalm 137, verse 5 through 7. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my hand forget its skill. If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my hand shrivel up. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, which means let me stand in silence. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. The true Jerusalem is in their midst, and their hand is shriveled up, their tongue is stuck to the top of their mouth, and they're saying, tear it down, tear it down, tear it down. The Pharisees do not know who they are in the story, and my question is, do you? Right? That's what this whole thing hangs on. Are there things, gifts, beautiful gifts, homeschooling, home births, finances jobs wives spouses are there gifts that god has given you that you are making unbearable burdens are you keeping the law in your own home as such that no one can stand up and hard, and no one can hardly breathe do you read a story like this and you think and jesus how does your righteousness not just break forth at this moment and just burn everyone right like when they open the ark at the end of Indiana Jones how often have you sat, sat there? It's happened to me more times than I care to say. And you're thinking, if only so and so was here to hear this. Or you're reading your Bible and you're like, man, I got to send this verse to, that, to this person I know. Because we don't think we're the ones who need the work. What, what this story should do is it should cause us to get on our knees and say, God, please do not be angry with me, do not cast me out. Do not let my heart be hard. Do not let my ears be stopped. Do not let my eyes be blind. Free me from myself. Teach me again what it means to have rest in your son. To make my life about him. To make my life about giving that same rest to others. Free me from this bondage of my own religion. That I might truly passionately take up my cross and follow you wherever you're going to go whatever trouble you're going to get me into so often we hear sermons so often we read the bible and, and all it is is it just turns our heart into a 30 cal machine gun mowing people down well look at that it says that look at that <laughs> man people are going to burn in hell and, we, right? and our, our kids can't stand up, and our wives are overburdened, and, and, our, and our husband can't do anything right. And, and this law that we have for one another that's man-made is keeping everybody down. And the only way is to cast it out and follow the one who gives eternal rest. And so as we go here from here today, pray, pray that God would not be angry with you, but that he would continue to show you the same mercy he always has, that he would continue to open your eyes, that he would continue to grip your heart so that you will not be a murderer for the sake of his gifts, but that you would follow him passionately, completely, fully. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Sabbath. We thank you for the Lord of the Sabbath who gives us rest. I pray, Lord God, as we go from here that you would indeed teach us by your unconditional love how to love, that you would teach us by your sabbath keeping how not only to keep the sabbath on sunday but how to make it a way of life please lord god let us be unburdened and let us be through the ministry of reconciliation those who go and unburden others i pray lord god that you would have mercy on us that you would clothe us in righteousness that you would restore us in your son and that you would be pleased with us in him in whose name we pray amen